4: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. UCSF sociologist Gretchen Sisson is putting a spotlight on adoption from the perspective of the birth mother, whose experiences, she says, have often gone unexamined or predetermined by a cultural narrative that frames adoption as ultimately always positive for everyone. But what Sisson finds all too often are system failures, power imbalances and even unaddressed traumas that not only challenge us to question what we think we know about our adoption system, but also to try harder to make the need for adoption more rare. Her new book is called Relinquished, The Politics of Adoption and the Privilege of American Motherhood. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We often think of adoption as an unmitigated social good that simultaneously helps unsupported, underprepared birth mothers and couples with financial means who are longing for children. But UCSF sociologist Gretchen Sisson finds that this framing ignores the experiences of birth mothers who bear the often complicated and sometimes traumatic consequences of relinquishing an infant, and who nearly always have far less socioeconomic power and agency than adoptive parents. Sisson conducted more than 100 interviews with birth mothers over a decade to understand how they came to pursue adoption and the lasting impact it's had on them and their families. Her new book is called Relinquished, and Gretchen Sisson joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you, Mina. So, Gretchen, how would you describe in a nutshell our cultural narrative around adoption? Our cultural
5: narrative on adoption is really focused on adoption as family building. And we very much focus on the families that are formed by adoption, the desires of adoptive parents, um, the manifestation of those desires in the adoption Adoptive family, the sanctity of that family, um, and we pay very little attention to the corresponding families that are separated by adoption. Um, I think that there are a number of cultural and political aims that are served by this focus on the adoptive family Um adoption has become the common ground in a lot of conversations on reproductive rights, on abortion. Hmm. Um, We sort of frame adoption as this way of not imposing motherhood on women for whom abortion is denied, um, or as an alternative to families who can't conceive on their own, by virtue of biology or circumstance. Um, And I think that allowing adoption to kind of become the panacea across all of these social issues allows us to only understand it as this beautiful force for social good without interrogating the inequities um, that are really underlying the separation of families.
4: So it's one of those rare areas of bipartisan agreement, which I guess contributes to the fact that maybe it's not interrogated, to use your word. But it also sounds like this idea of it or understanding of it has been reinforced a lot in popular culture. In what ways? How have those messages been reinforced?
5: Well, I think that we tell a lot of stories, again, about adoptive families. And there isn't really a model in our popular culture for what modern adoption looks like. So most adoptions today are open, which means that there is some contact between the adoptive family, the adopted child, and their family of origin. Um, that can look like a, a range of things, um, from just infrequent pictures, communications, to really in, engagement with the broader family on the part of the birth parent. And um, but we don't have a model for what this looks like in the cultural stories that we tell about adoption. Um, and I think that this is important. In a lot of the films that we see, um, a lot of our television stories, we see birth parents either as completely indifferent to their child, right?
4: You mean like in Juno?
5: Juno is a great example. And that's one that a lot of the mothers that I interviewed um, really latched on um, This idea of quite literally... Bicycling away after the adoption occurs. Um, they also had some logistical concerns for Juno uh, bicycling so soon after delivery. But um, but more more importantly, broader concerns about the lack of a that they didn't see the attachment that they still felt for their child reflected in in Juno and in stories like that. Um, none of these women relinquished their child because they did not want to have any part in the child's life going forward, because they didn't care for their child. Um, and so you see this refrain, Juno is, again, probably the best example, um, but you certainly see just birth mothers that are kind of indifferent to their children. On the other hand, you see stories of birth mothers who represent a threat to the adopted family. Um, And they are there as a destabilizing force, um, either because they hope to regain custody in some way, because they want to take the child away, because they want to insert themselves into some sort of family dynamic. And there isn't a story that helps us understand what birth parents need, what they want out of the adoption, what their children need as far as contact with their family of origin over the course of all of their lives.
4: So then based on your conversations, your interviews um, with dozens of women over the course of a decade, more than 100 of these conversations, what have you come to conclude is the reality of the adoption experience for Birth mothers, or some underlying commonality that you have found? So, most of the mothers that I interviewed wanted to parent their
5: children. That was really um, the almost the unifying factor for most of them was that they wanted to parent and they felt that they couldn't for whatever reason and they were really sold this idea of adoption as a better life for their child um, that this is going to be a superior upbringing to what they could offer their own child. Um, for some of them it was it was not just this this marketing, this sort of optimistic, idea of adoption. For some of them, they were experiencing a more acute crisis, an unsafe relationship that they didn't want to bring a baby home to, Um, lack of stable housing, um, lack of support from their own parents and their own families. Um, Some of them were struggling with addiction. Some of them uh, were struggling with mental health crises that they couldn't find support for. Um, And for all of them, adoption became I don't want to say the solution because I don't actually think it solved any of these challenges that they were facing, but it was introduced as a solution. They were told that adoption would be the solution. Um, And, you know, I think that that's what we see longer term is that most of the mothers I interviewed came to a very critical, cynical place in considering the ways that they had been failed by adoption over time.
4: I was so struck by this line in your book where you write adoption is about transferring infants from mothers that have become convinced by virtue of their poverty, their youth, or their single status, or all three, that they are poorly prepared to parent. And what's striking about that line is convinced suggests that they there wasn't a lot of free, open, and informed, or maybe even there were some coercive aspects of the quote unquote choice to relinquish their child, place their child for adoption?
5: Yeah, I think that we often understand, and there's this idea that adopting is an altruistic act, right, that we need more people to adopt children. When it comes to the private adoption system, we have far, far more prospective adoptive parents than we do babies available. Um, There aren't Excellent estimates, but the best estimates that we do have say there's between 8 and 45 waiting families for every infant that's relinquished. There is a very, very high demand for adoptable babies and very, very few infants that are actually available. And when you understand that within a market-based system, you can start to understand the ways that agencies and attorneys and other adoption facilitators are highly motivated to want to increase the supply of babies, right? They have clients to serve. They have people who want to adopt. Um, And you see that a lot in the really aggressive marketing that a lot of the mothers that I interviewed encountered, in the biased counseling a lot of them received that, that helped them have a very constrained sense of their own opportunities um, and in the ways that they are failed to be supported post-adoption as well.
4: And you saw this even among birth mothers who may describe their adoption as a positive or ultimately the right move um, for their child, that there was this commonality of, of, wanting to parent in some form um, or having an extremely difficult time, at least at the moment of relinquishment.
5: Right, and I think that a lot of mothers, their feelings about their adoptions changed over time. So one young woman I interviewed um, in 2010, um, she was just over a year out from her adoption. Her son had just celebrated his first birthday. um, And she went to the party. It was this, she was in a very close open adoption with her son and his adoptive parents. Um, She had breastfed. She had pumped breast milk and had the adoptive father come pick it up. Like they were in really close contact for that first year. Um, And she was feeling great about this adoption when I first spoke with her. Um, She felt that the parents that she had chosen were just incredible people. They were the types of parents that she wanted to be when she eventually had children. Um, Again, they had a good relationship. And when I asked her, I said, well, what should adoption look like? And she said, mine, right? She was just bubbly and effusive about this. And this was the time when she was still in good contact with her agency. And they were putting her on having her speak to prospective adoptive parents about her adoption. And she felt great. Um, And when I went back and interviewed her in 2020, I mean, just the change in her voice when she was speaking about it. And, And I said, I was like, you told me 10 years ago that every adoption should look like yours. And she said, yeah. That sounds like something I would have said. And she goes on to say, I just feel like this adoption wasn't even necessary, right? And it wasn't just that she felt that she had been misled, that she had been promised this really rosy picture of what adoption was going to accomplish for her, but also for her child. And as her child had grown up, she had seen him have some ongoing challenges that she felt that his adoptive parents actually weren't prepared for, that she might have been a better mother for him in some of those moments. Um, And I think that it shows that you can find birth mothers who will say that this adoption was excellent, the right choice, feels great, serving her and the child well. But that doesn't always endure long term. And she had come to a much more critical place in understanding where she was at the time of her pregnancy which was yeah i mean when she she was working she was employed at a church at the time of her pregnancy um she lost her job when they found out that she was pregnant when she wasn't married um her partner, or the father of the baby, was not involved. She did not really want him to be involved. She didn't want an ongoing relationship with him. Um, she had been raised by a single mother. Um, she grew up in the evangelical church. She was told that she had committed a sin by becoming pregnant, that adoption was a way of redeeming her and her child, um, and also that Being raised by married parents was very, very important to him. And this was sort of the framing that she was bringing. Um, And she also talked about having a lot of trauma growing up that she hadn't really processed that made her feel um, that she wasn't in a strong place to raise him. But nobody ever helped her with with processing all of that at the time of the pregnancy.
4: So in crisis, bombarded by a lot of messages, and in that space, making a lifelong decision. We're talking with Gretchen Sisson about the realities of adoption from the perspective of birth mothers. Her new book is relinquished. We'll have more with her and with you after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera,
4: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about adoption this hour and the experience of birth mothers with Gretchen Sisson, who's written a new book called Relinquished, The Politics of Adoption and the Privilege of American Motherhood. And we want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Have you relinquished or or placed an infant for adoption? Are you an adoptee? Are you seeking to adopt or pursuing a private adoption? What do you wish people understood better about adoption? What are you hearing about our adoption system from Gretchen this hour that you didn't realize or know? What would you like to ask? Dr. Sisson, you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can post them on our social channels at KQED forum. You can give us a call, 866 733 6786. 866 733 6786. And this listener writes, what percentage of all adoptions in a typical year are private domestic adoptions as opposed to international adoptions or adoptions from foster care? And I appreciate this question because you did make the decision to focus specifically on private domestic adoptions.
5: I did, yes. Um, I actually wish that I could have a more specific answer to this question, but we don't have federal tracking for private domestic adoptions that specify infant adoption. Actually, the most common kind of adoption in this country is step-parent adoption, right? So if I'm raising children and I'm widowed or divorced and get remarried and my new spouse adopts my children, that's the most frequent kind of adoption that we see in this country. And that is a private adoption, which is obviously quite different than a domestic private adoption of infants. Um, There's actually a bill in Congress right now to actually count these things better (laughs) to try to understand the full scale and scope of the problem. But as the adoptions that I'm looking at, which are private domestic adoption of infants, um, estimated about 18 to 22,000 per year. Those were numbers pre-Dobbs, so that might change a little bit in the post-Dobbs context, but that's about what we're talking about. Um, As far as international adoption, um, there are very, very few international adoptions right now. So there was a big wave, an increase in international adoptions during the 90s through the early 2000s, and then dropped quite quickly. So now there are very, very few adoptions of um, newborns coming into the United States
4: from a Abroad. And who did you talk to? Who were the more than one hundred interviews conducted with? Can you tell us about their demographic diversity? A little bit about their range of experiences, income levels.
5: Yes. So the women that I spoke with, I started doing interviews in twenty ten. I did my second wave of interviews in twenty twenty. Um, they had a a tremendous range of of background, what brought them to adoption. Some of them were coming from a religious background, an anti-abortion background, um, but most of them were coming from poverty. Um, I will also say in the first cohort that I recruited in 2010, Almost all of those women were white, and that is actually fairly reflective of who has historically participated in private adoption. So again, we don't have great numbers as a researcher. I wish we did. But (laughs) when you look back um, at the 90s and early 2000s for private adoption, it was almost entirely a white institution. Women of color were not relinquishing their children for private adoption, and that's reflected in the 2010 sample. In the 2020 sample, I had a lot more women of color that I interviewed. And that is a reflective of not just my recruiting, but a real change in who is, is participating in private adoption. Um, so I also did some data collection um, looking at just demographic data for over 8,000 adoptions. Um, and it's still majority white mothers, um, but about 55%, whereas it was over 90% if you look back at around 2000 or in the 90s. So we are seeing more and more women of color that are participating in private adoption now. And you see that reflected in the change of the women that I interviewed between 2010 and 2020.
4: Yeah. And their adoptions took place between 2000 and 2020. You interviewed them between 2010 and 2020. You described them as lawyers, college students, psychologists, sex workers, hairstylists, a grocery store cashier, a photographer. So a whole range of experiences, roles that they are playing in their lives, and so on. And you emphasize frequently and and importantly that if we wish to understand what adoption means today, we must also listen to relinquishing mothers now. And I actually want to bring into the conversation a participant in your research, Serena Chacon, who lives in Northern California. Serena, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell us your story. What was happening for you when you learned you were pregnant?
3: Um, So I learned that I was pregnant when I just barely turned 21. And um, I wasn't with my partner, the father at the time. Um, And, you know, I I was a student. I was going to school. um, I was living with family and I didn't really have the means to support myself and I didn't feel like at the time I had the means to support baby. Um, and that was reinforced, um, by I was influenced by my mother to, um, explore the option of adoption. Um, and so I did. And in my third trimester, I found a family, um, through a family friend. And they adopted my baby.
4: How was the message that you should consider adoption reinforced by your mother?
3: Oh, that's such a complex question. But um, so she was a teenage, she was a teenage mother to herself. She got pregnant the first time she had intercourse at 15. And she had my sister and she did not want to be she did not want to have a child. And this was, you know, in the 70s. Um, and so my grandparents forced her to keep the baby. And so she reinforced that to me, like, you know, when I, I wish I had the opportunity to 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 give my baby up for adoption. That's what she would tell me, because I really think that she would have a better life. It was always about having a better life, hmm. providing a better life for my sister. Um, but she wasn't able to. She was forced to keep her baby. And so I think she was trying to help me. And I believe she was coming from a good place, but like things like that, or don't become another statistic, you know, and and that meant don't become another woman, pregnant, single, living off of the welfare system. Right. Um, And that was reinforced my whole life. Don't become a statistic. Don't become a statistic. And so when I got pregnant at 21, I could barely afford to provide for myself. You know, I was young, I was going to school, I had a job at the community college that I was attending, and I didn't really have the resources or the means or the support to raise a baby.
4: And so you, as you say, went online, you found adoptive parents that you really liked and you decided to place your son for adoption. How long did you have him after he was born. I understand that your experience of delivery was extremely difficult.
3: Oh, yeah, it was horrible. Um, So I actually didn't go online to find them. They found me. So my attorney was my uncle. And my uncle contacted my parents um, and asked if they could actually adopt my nephew. And my parents said, No, but we have Serena here who's pregnant. And she is considering adoption and so oh, wow. he my uncle introduced me to the
4: adoptive family um thanks for clarifying and, I, I just had that in my notes oh, probably incorrectly yeah. so yeah so oh. then then what happened when was elias so, yeah
3: so he was born on january 29th 2007 um at kaiser moore's hospital and i did not have my baby in the delivery room um I was treated very poorly. I didn't get to hold him. I didn't hold him on my chest. Um, I wasn't allowed to bond with him. Um, And uh, I asked for my mother to stay in the room with me, like the post delivery room with me, and they wouldn't allow her, they made her leave. Um, And then the next morning I found out that they'd given the adoptive parents a room down the hallways from mine for them to bond with the baby. Um, And I held him for maybe five or 10 minutes. And then I left the hospital without him. And I didn't see him again until he was
4: two. What effect did that have on you? When did you realize that you actually wanted your baby back?
3: Seven days after I placed.
4: And what were you told?
3: I was told that I couldn't, I couldn't get him. I couldn't, I could not take him back. I could not um, get him from the parents because that would be a breach of contract. And um, he's already bonded with the family and he already, you know, was adjusted to them and not to me. And that would be traumatic for him and traumatic for them. And that I couldn't do it. I could not
4: have him. It's been some years now. How do you feel about? your decision to pursue adoption for your son now? How do you look at that time at that feeling that you had seven days after he was born?
3: I look at that feeling that I had seven days after he was born as it's really sad. You know, I thought I I was convinced that I was doing the right thing and I was convinced that I was making the right choice and the right decision for myself, but I was I was heavily influenced by my my mom, and um, you know I, I feel like it's adoption is such a complex issue, right? Like in the moment when we're when birth mothers are thinking about adoption and their babies, we're thinking about the bigger picture. We're thinking about like what can what can what kind of life can we provide for them? And at the time, I couldn't provide anything. But looking back now, in hindsight, all really babies need is love and attention. And I could have provided that, but I was it was ingrained in me that I didn't have the resources, I didn't have the financial means, I didn't have that picturesque family with two parents, a mother and a dad. And so it's it's not something that I ever regret. But if I would have known then and been empowered then, I probably would have chose differently.
4: Hmm what do you think people misunderstand most about your experience or the experience of birth mothers in an adoption process?
3: That's a great question. You know, a lot of people don't really know about adoption unless they're an adoptee or they have adopted. Um, There is a lack of education around the adoption world. And so I think What I really want people to know is, it's not a one size fits all, and it's not a means to escape or replace abortion. Um, For me, abortion was not an option that I just did not want to have an abortion. So, but I also wasn't prepared to have a baby, and so adoption I felt like was the only option, but if I would have been empowered and had the resources, you know, it takes, they say it takes a village to raise a child. And I just feel like if I would have had a village surrounding me to help me, um, mother and parent and build me up and. I would have been able to succeed probably. And so I feel like there isn't enough education, um, birth mothers, I feel, sometimes are preyed upon, you know, of of the system. Adoption is a $25 billion industry. Like, and who profits from that? The adoptive parents, not the birth mom, and sometimes not even the kid. It's never the birth mom. The birth mom never, she's giving something and she's getting nothing in return. And I feel like this, it's like a transaction. And then she's left with, this ambiguous lo- or ambiguous loss. you know, I have a lot of grief that surrounds my adoption. And um it's not talked about enough, I don't feel like. And so that's why I really appreciate Gretchen's work because she has explored over um, you know, a decade, a lot of the stories sound like mine. Mm-hmm. I'm not the only one. And so that, I I really appreciate Gretchen's work to open this conversation and um, provide a voice for us, birth mothers and birth parents.
4: Well, Serena, I really appreciate you coming on to share your story. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Serena Chacon is a birth mother based in Northern California. We're also talking with Dr. Gretchen Sisson of UCSF, a qualitative sociologist studying abortion and Adoption at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at UC San Francisco. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions, comments, experiences, stories. The email address is forum at kqed.org. Our social channels are at KQED forum on X, on Instagram, on our digital community, on Discord, as well as other channels. You can call us at 866-733-6786. And this listener writes... Some adoptees carry that loss of their birth mothers their whole lives, affecting their relationships for years to come. It's a deep-seated trauma that's difficult to resolve. Let me go to caller Bonnie in San Rafael. Bonnie, you're on. Hi.
6: Thanks for taking my call. I um relinquished my child when I was sixteen years old. And I wanted to just comment and I hope that this is addressed in the book, which I'm looking forward to reading just how it impacted me as a future mother. So I didn't have my next child until I was 30, and I had four kids subsequently. Um, But until I kind of got some therapy around the loss, and I I really had this idea that because I was told at the time over and over again that you're unfit to be the mother of this child, and it would be so selfish of you to keep him, even though you want to, um, that there's someone else out there who can do a good job at this and you cannot, that that was in my psyche in a really strong way when I was raising my other kids. And um, I it had a lot of shame that I had to get through from the experience. And yes, I'm curious if other birth moms go through that. And then the second comment I had, if your author um, wants to talk about this or does in the book, is that when I talk about adoption to friends or other family members, um, my son and I reunited when he turned 18. I found him because it would have been a closed adoption mm-hmm. and found out that the fit had not been good and that he had run away from home when he was 12, and that he didn't really have a relationship with family. Mm. And so he just been absorbed into my life. So when people ask me, like, how many kids do you have? I would say five. He calls me mom. And his birth parents, eventually, when they found out that he had reunited with me, said that he had to choose mm. either to ever talk to them again or, or me. And he chose me. What I find is that <laughs> that conversation is Really shocking to people, and um, especially if they have adoption in their lives. Like this is almost like the worst fear, right? If you adopt a child, that then they ultimately make that choice later in life. And um, so, I guess it's just kind of a delicate subject. That any advice on how to kind of broach it because I'm always like, this won't happen. You know, this is very rare, and mm. and at the same time, like. I, I told you, people. Like I should have kept it. Like you're my, you know, well, I knew, I knew, I knew, and and yet, um, uh, it, it just didn't work that way. So, and any questions that you have for me, I'm happy to answer because, like I said, I did get a lot of therapy around this now, and it's a really beautiful, beautiful thing that's been able to make him in my life again and part of our family. So,
4: yeah. Well, thank you, Bonnie. What an incredible story. Um, and also, Gretchen. Bonnie was saying, "Is this something that you found?" And of course, it absolutely is. This messaging of fitness as being a very strong, a, a, a very strong message that is internalized.
5: Yes, I mean, I think the question of um this deservedness of parents so many birth mothers are told not just that they're an unworthy parent but that they are a better parent by relinquishing their children that that's what makes them worthy um and I and I did see that play out um for a lot of my participants who had
4: children down the line we'll have more with Gretchen Sisson after the break stay with us I'm Mina Kim Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim with UCSF's Gretchen Sisson, who conducted over 100 interviews over a decade with birth mothers who relinquished their children to learn how they came to pursue adoption and the impact that the decision had on them and their families. The book is called Relinquished the Politics of Adoption and the Privilege of American Motherhood. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation if you have relinquished or placed an infant for adoption. There is a lot of terminology, and, and we will try to reflect hopefully your preferred terminology for the experience. Um, But if that is one that you've had, let us know if you'd like, if you're an adoptee, what your experience has been like. If you're seeking to adopt or are adoptive parents, what that experience has been like for you as well. What do you wish people understood better about adoption? What would you like to ask or tell Gretchen Sisson? What are you hearing about our adoption system that is new to you? Our social channels at KQED Forum, our email address forum at kqed.org, our phone number 866 733 6786. 866 733 6786. The listener writes, I have adopted cousins, and I always wondered what made their mothers give them up. Being from the baby boomer generation, there was no such thing as open adoption, so there was no way to know if the mothers wanted to be part of their lives. I always wondered about why mothers gave the children up. Again, this is. Um, Language that is being brought into the conversation. And if the typical reasons we heard were genuine and not a reflection of a lack of support for women in less than ideal circumstances. Vicki writes, I relinquished a child when I was 16. I have known him since he was 19. It was the best of all possible closed adoption scenarios. Nevertheless, being relinquished is a wound to a child no less impactful than to relinquishing birth mothers. It designed our whole lives and neither of us had agency. I'm wondering if you can explain what open adoption and closed adoption means and knowing and understanding from your book that open adoption actually means many things.
5: Yes. Um, So I was glad the one listener brought up um, the the baby boomer generation. Um, In in adoption communities, um, that time from the end of World War II until 1973 with the decision in Roe v. Wade um, is called the baby scoop era frequently um, because it was a time of very intense, very coercive adoptions. Um, And that was the time that you would see young women – And they were almost always girls and and young women being sent away to maternity homes by their families to deliver babies in secret. Um, And they had really no control. They were not picking out the parents, they did not know where their children went, Um, they were often not even allowed to hold their child. Ann Fessler has a really excellent book called The Girls Who Went Away that really documents this kind of era of adoption history that I think is really important. Um, And those were fully closed adoptions. Um, Starting in the late 70s, 80s through the 90s, um, you have sort of this introduction of openness, some degree of openness in adoption. And this was a time when domestic adoption numbers were plummeting as soon as abortion access became more accessible. Um, and openness was a way of making adoption more comfortable for some women that were in this position. Um And that openness has increased, and today over 90% of adoptions have some degree of openness to them. But what that means is any number of things. And so I would hear from mothers who'd be like, "Yeah, my adoption is open, and the adoption agency sends me pictures twice a year of my kid, and they're going to do that until he turns five, and and then that's it. That's my open adoption, right? And on the other end of the spectrum, I spoke with some mothers who, you know, were babysitting their children for long weekends for the adoptive parents, Um, were going on family vacations with the extended family um and then in between mothers who you know were going to soccer games and ballet recitals um and kind of showing up in some way or for for families that were long distance doing zoom hangouts um for a number of mothers who had older children it was a big um, it was a big milestone when their children got their own phones around 13 14 years old and they could text their child could text them directly um, that was a big milestone in their open adoption because they felt that they could have more open channels of communication so openness again does not mean one thing and it also doesn't mean one thing legally so in some states there is some some degree of enforceability to openness agreements but in most of them there isn't and it's sort of this gentleman's agreement about the amount of contact that mothers are going to be able to have with their children Um, and a lot of them didn't have any support for that right adoption agencies weren't giving them the counseling to make openness possible the sort of negotiation any any relationship that's bringing that much emotion and a good deal of trauma is going to require some support. And there were not a lot of places that they could find that. Um, I also think one thing that's really important is that we understand openness in adoption as a favor to birth parents, right? Um, Actually, a lot of the mothers that I spoke with, the openness was really painful. They wanted to show up for their child. They wanted to be there. They, of course, wanted to know that they were safe. They wanted their child to know who they were, where they were, to be able to contact them when necessary. But kind of the continual contact and re-separation was really painful. Um, One mother, she had a sort of a standing day. Um, she She would visit with her son one Sunday every month, and she always took the next Monday off from work um, because she would go into this depression about having to say goodbye to him again. And actually, the person that benefits the most from openness is is the adopted person as they grow up. Those are the people who benefit the most from knowing their family of origin. Um, and I think Openness is protective against some of the really deepest levels of trauma that we see in adoption, Um, but it was not easy. Uh, It was certainly a lot of emotional um, and logistical labor for the mothers that I spoke with.
4: So it requires a real negotiation and a real commitment on the part of the adoptive parents as well as the birth mother, um, because the goal, it sounds like, ultimately is to benefit the the child. I was struck by the fact that I think only one of your interviewees elected a closed adoption, and in that case, it was because they were concerned about the safety of their child. Actually, from
5: from right, the birth and mother. um, she was in a very abusive relationship. Um, she was really uh, abducted by this person, and um, and, and had every aspect of her life controlled by him. Um, and, and did not want him to even know that the baby existed mm. um, and actually uh, she was her agency in this case encouraged her to maintain some level of contact and so she was able after she was able, could leave that unsafe relationship, she was able to have kind of a minimally open channel of communication um, with her child and her child's adoptive parents. Um, so even that one was was able to be opened in time, but she
4: was the only one who had been initially interested in a closed adoption. Hmm. Well, Kim writes, I am a midwife, abortion rights activist, mother and an adoptee. I have stood with women through all the choices and I'm very grateful for the writing of these birth mothers experiences. There is no right or wrong choice as long as a woman is honored, supported and respected. In my experience and observations, it is another way the misogynistic culture removes agency and autonomy from women and puts shame on their sexual lives. Let me go to caller Tracy in Santa Rosa. Hi, Tracy, you're on.
3: Hi, good morning. Thank you. I may have misheard. I believe one of uh, there was a caller who referenced that adoption is a billion dollar industry and i I thought the implication was that adoptive parents may somehow profit from that, and I was just hoping for some clarification. Um, that's not the case. That's how I and in- Interpreted, uh, you know the comment. But again, may I maybe I misheard. But I thought it could use some clarification.
1: Yeah,
4: thank you, Tracy. I'm not so sure that you misheard the actual words, but I'm not sure if that was the actual intent of the comment. I think what um, you have described in the book is actually an industry um, that profits significantly, or or needs to um, to be to be able to spend the many dollars that they need to be able to find and convince to use your word birth mothers to relinquish their children. Can you talk a little bit about that that industry?
5: Yeah, and I think to respond to that the question, I think what the comment meant was not that adoptive parents are benefiting Financially from the adoption of their children, but that they're benefiting by having the child yeah. as part of their family. That, that that's the transaction there.
4: And Tracy, thank you for, for yeah that for
5: in. for flagging yeah. that. Um, I mean, there is a huge amount of money that goes into adoption, um, and I think a lot of people believe that the expense of adoption is rooted in legal fees or in support for birth parents during their pregnancies. Very few of the mothers I interviewed had any any level of financial support from the agencies during their pregnancies. Um, The exception is if they were unhoused, they would often get housing, but that ends up being a double-edged sword because some agencies would then tell them after they gave birth, if they were having second thoughts, that they would have to reimburse the agency um, for the cost of their housing, or that they'd be charged with fraud for accepting housing during their pregnancies. But most mothers just did not have any level of financial support from the agencies. and I, I think that that is a really important um, important myth that is that is out there that is worth countering. But this gets back to the biggest expense for most agencies when you look at their tax filings is in marketing, is in advertising, right? Because again, you have a high demand for babies and you have very few babies available. And agencies will be, you know, geofencing Abortion clinics, so that if you go to a Planned Parenthood, you might start getting ads on your phone for adoption agencies. Methadone clinics, um, places for food assistance, public hospitals. Um, These types of places um, are going to be targeted for advertising from from agencies and attorneys, and in many cases, unlicensed adoption facilitators. Um, A huge amount of money goes into this, um, far more than goes into actually supporting pregnant people
4: what are the marketing moves that require so much money it it sounds yeah. quite quite targeted it's very targeted um
5: yeah the the geofencing that i mentioned is um it, it's hard to gauge like how much these private companies are actually spending on any of these things but it's it's meaningful there's also more money this is probably more effective use of their money is is virtual geofencing so if you're doing um, if you're visiting certain URLs um, or if you're searching keywords like um, you know help for single moms in California or I'm pregnant and I need help in in California or Los Angeles or wherever um, you're going to start getting targeted ads from agencies on those search terms and you can see that a lot of agencies especially for-profit agencies are specifically buying terms that don't have anything to do with adoption they're Just terms that suggest that you are pregnant and need help, (laughs) and I think that that is really key. Um, Prospective adoptive parents also spend a lot of money on um, their own profiles, their own websites, their own search engine optimization. Um, They, you know, there's a lot of courses out there for prospective adoptive parents on how they can maximize um, hits to their adoption profile and and going viral in some way. You know, and I think that. there, that's a huge expenditure, not to mention the public resources that go into um, the adoption tax credits to public funding for crisis pregnancy centers that are often partnered with adoption agencies. Um, you know, all of these ways that, that private money, philanthropic money, and public money go into funding and, and holding up this system of private adoption.
4: Susan writes, I work therapeutically with an older woman who was coerced by her mother to give up her fetus because it would give her family shame. The religious adoption agency assured her that they would find a family that accommodated her ideals. This never occurred. When she found her adult child many years later, she learned that the family was terribly abusive. She and her adult child have spent years working through the wounds on both sides. Noelle on Discord writes, my mom-in-law has, is an adoptee and it took many years to find her birth parents. Adoptees have lobbied for open birth records. It sounds like this also opened our society to the concept of open adoption and that it would get rid of the shame and secrecy around adoption. But it sounds like open adoption is not that panacea. How How can we make adoption better? Given everything that you have uncovered, I imagine you must have strong feelings about about the system. And again, let me remind listeners, we're talking about adoption. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. How and what have you heard from birth mothers about ways that it could be better? um a lot of
5: birth mothers well and i and to start i should be clear that a lot of activism and advocacy that happens in the adoption space is driven by adopted people rather than birth parents um and so a lot of times when birth parents are interested in becoming more engaged in advocacy or policy on this issue, they are following the lead of adopted people. Um, and accordingly, a lot of the policy change that we've seen um, has been about what that, that listener just mentioned, which is open access to birth certificates. Um, and we're finally getting there. We're seeing a few key states, um, Vermont, South Dakota, are really working on clean bills to allow adopted people access to their original birth certificates. I believe California has one that's coming up this session. Um, So a lot of advocacy has been rooted in sort of if an adoption has already occurred, right? What do we want that to look like for the adoptee? And I think that that's really important. Um, I also think there, well, there are also some bills, I should say, that are federal bills. Um, There was one in California last year to limit some of this marketing for unlicensed adoption facilitators. Um, There's now a federal bill that's sort of the same thing nationwide. Um, I think that there is some utility in considering what those look like um, and how we can... um, limit the scope of some of this outreach and just recalibrate how we are understanding adoption. But the policy changes that I am most interested in Are actually rooted in how we are supporting families in the first place so that pregnant people aren't ending up in this position of making a constrained choice of having adoption be their lifeline. What does that look like to actually empower people to make sure that they have the resources, the support, the safe communities that they need to really Take care of their children to feel like they are making an informed decision when it comes to that point. Um, and the good thing is that this will benefit far, far more people than the families that are are impacted by adoption or could potentially be impacted by adoption. Because there are millions of American families that are living in poverty that are facing these same challenges and these same compromises. And the policies that will act as family preservation policies that will keep families together that will Ensure that pregnant women are in a position of empowered choice at the time, they're also going to benefit all of these families that are in a vulnerable place.
4: Well, let me go to caller Jean and Hollister. Jean, thanks for waiting. You're on.
2: Hi. I have kind of an unusual and very happy adoption story. Back in 1978, when I was uh, 30 and had just gotten married, I went to see my best friend, Annie, who lived on the south coast of Big Sur, single mom, managing a -a two-and-a-half-year-old. She'd had um, two abortions previously. The pregnancy was the result of a one-night stand. I went down to see her. I walked in one day, and she said, You can say no if you want to, lead into many conversations, but I think I'm pregnant. Will you take the baby? And that is my son, Nathaniel, who is now 45 years old. He calls me mom, he calls her bio mom. We are all one family together. We lived in the same house when he was born. I was there at his birth. He was always my kid. She was always clear he was my kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet I was always very clear that the family is a bigger family now. They lived. We both lived in different states during the kids growing up, and then as adults, we've all come back uh, to Hollister. Well,
4: Jeet, I, I so appreciate your story, and I'm so sorry we're at the end of the hour, but I think it really touches on something bigger, which is there are things, the structural changes that are needed, but before maybe they come to pass, Gretchen, that I think can be done if this instance of adoption occurs.
5: I think this story is a good reflection of thinking more creatively about what it means to create connection and care for children broadly. And that, to me, is really exciting.
4: Gretchen Sisson, the book is relinquished. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment and, as always, to our listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
2: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation,